Mark chapter 15, beginning at the 16th, 16th verse. When you got it, let me know. Got it. <clears throat> Coming out of the ESV, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put him in his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that as I preach and teach the word this morning, that you would perform a work in all of our hearts, that you would speak to us in the area that we are in, the situation, the circumstance that we come in with this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us some answers, you would give us some insights, some solutions, you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would comfort us, you would exhort us to action, show us where we fall short, show us where we can improve so that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus and to live the way he lived. Help us to have a proper perspective on you and that our proper perspective on you would shape the rest of our life. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. So, one of the first things they'll try to teach you in any type of um, seminary or Bible college or anything, or even an informal class on God, if you just take any type of class or just focus in on the person and nature and character of God, one thing they're going to talk about is the attributes of God. That's like one of the most essential things that is, that is going to come up in Christianity one-on-one, the attributes of God. In other words, uh, what are these things that make God who he is? God is different from humans. He has some similarities, but at the end of the day, he's a transcendent being, and there are certain attributes and characteristics and virtues that make him separated from us. For example, the Bible says that God is omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. There's nothing beyond the scope of his knowledge. In fact, the book of Isaiah says that he not only knows the future, but he knows the past and why the things in the past actually took place. He knows all 
things. The Bible says he's omnipotent, which means he's all powerful. He's sovereign. He's the king. There is nothing beyond the scope of his ability. The Bible says he's omnipresent. He can be all places at the same time. He can be here and we can experience God's presence here in Cleveland, Ohio. But there's a church somewhere in Israel or in Africa who's also experiencing God's presence at the exact same time because God is not limited by time and space. So God has all these attributes that make him who he is. But there are some key attributes that are just as important as the one I just mentioned, if not more important, because it speaks of God's holiness. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, Moses has a request for God. He says, God, I've been doing things for you. I've been leading the Israelites. I've been trying to pull them out of Egypt. I've been being the prophet, even though I didn't want to be a prophet. Here's the one thing I'm asking for you, God. I'm asking that you show me your glory. And God is like, I can't show you my face because nobody can see my face and live. But what I'll do is I'll put you and hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will take my hand and cover you with my hand. And I will pass by you so that you can see my glorious back parts. You can see the afterglow of my glorious presence, but my face you cannot see. And he says that when I do this, I'm going to proclaim the name of Yahweh to you. And when God said he's going to proclaim the name of Yahweh, he doesn't just say he's going to call out his name. What he's saying is that he was going to call out his attributes so that he could reveal his person to who Moses was. Let me get that scripture up in, in Exodus chapter 34 so we can read it together. It says, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means that he does not change. What God's attributes were back then are the exact same attributes that he possesses now. So everything that God just said in Exodus 34 about himself, we can apply those same exact attributes and principles today. So when you read through those attributes, what do you notice? You don't see a lot of omnipresence and omnipotence. God could have called out all of that stuff. But when he revealed himself to Moses, what does he let Moses know? I'm a God of compassion, (laughs) gracious, mercy, slow to anger unfailing love out of all the things he he could have revealed them and say I'm all powerful king of the earth I do what I want when I want to and nobody can question me because all those things are true but Moses says I want to know you better and God says here's what you need to know I'm a God of love and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and patience When we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, we talk about all the things it represents. It represents sacrifice. It represents death. It represents uh, 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 God's grace towards humanity and all these different things. It represents God's justice. It represents a lot of things. But one of the things that we don't talk about is that it represents God's patience on the human race. 
When we look at the cross of Christ, we don't just want to look at it and see a suffering Savior or, or see the wrath of God being poured out. We want to see that this is a symbol of God's patience towards sinful humanity. So that's what I want to talk about today as we walk through this story of the crucifixion. First of all, let me explain what a crucifixion is. Uh, crucifixions were created by the Persians, and um, they would pierce the hands and the feet of the victim, and it would be like a precursor to like, actually the scourging would be like the precursor to the crucifixion, so they would whip somebody, and then after they whipped them and humiliated them, they'll, they'll, the Persians would nail them to a plank of wood or sometimes a tree, and it would be a, not a means just to kill them, it was a means of shaming people. So that when they crucified people, they crucified them naked. They didn't have clothes on because they want to humiliate, humiliate them, but they also want to put them through excruciating pain. Before I even get into Mark, there's two things we need to understand. The crucifixion is not some made-up event that a bunch of guys got together who wrote the Bible and said, hey, let's just make up this idea. We know that the crucifixion happened as a historical fact for two different reasons. Three different reasons, but two are the most important. The one that we all should know, well, the New Testament says it happened, and we believe that's the word of God, so we presuppose that it took place. But even beyond that, we have secular history, first century historians, second century historians, third century historians, all unbelievers who are acknowledging that this crucifixion took place, so we have no reason to doubt it based on that. Second of all, and here's the, the, the supernatural approach, uh, the biblical authors prophesied Jesus' crucifixion centuries before it took place with such a high degree of accuracy where there's no way they could have made it up. So we know that the crucifixion took place. So when we read this story, let's not just read it as some Bible story that somebody made up. Let's look at it as an actual event of history. Let's pick it up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hell, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So you have these soldiers. These soldiers are the Romans, the Gentiles. And it says they're putting a thorn crown. It's common sense what that is right there, mocking him to make it look like he's a, he's a king when they don't really believe he is. They put the, the colors of royalty on him to mock him because he's, they, he's claiming to be a king and they don't believe he is. But remember, he just had his flesh whipped. So you can imagine how painful it is to already have your flesh exposed and you got all this extra stuff being put on, you got this fabric being put on your skin. He's going through an extreme amount of pain. But it doesn't say he retaliated. They're, they're putting the crown on him. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. These are Gentiles, but nowhere in the text does it say that Jesus retaliated against them. He sought no vengeance. Now, when I'm reading this, I'm saying, now, if I was God, <laughs> somebody going to get touched. I mean, I'm sorry. If I, if, if I know I got all this power and you're you going to try to play me like somebody going to get touched, man. But, but Jesus is sitting here taking this beat down, having people make fun of him when he knew the whole time I could wipe all y'all out. 
He shows restraint. But look at who he's showing restraint to. He's showing restraint to Roman Gentiles. Romans would represent those idol-worshiping pagans who are far away from God, not only ethically but theologically. So you think about the people in our culture who are a part of different religions and worship false gods and don't even realize they worship false gods. The people that we are, we are quick to wish judgment on because of their, their, their heresy. But Jesus is dealing with people like that. And he's patiently waiting, not seeking vengeance. Stick with me. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Now, this guy, uh, Simon of Cyrene, uh, many people will, will talk about this like, oh, he he carried the cross of Jesus. He's this noble, righteous guy because he came and helped Jesus carry his cross. And, you know, we, we preach the feel good message. But but when you look at what it says, it says they compelled him to do that. They said, boy, you better get that cross <laughs> or you're going to be up on this thing next. That, that's what that was. So it's not a noble act. He was forced to do this. So he's forced to carry Jesus' cross. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't carry his own cross. It means that Jesus was carrying his own cross, but it got too much for him. Because remember, his flesh is hanging out. He got a a ragged piece of wood (laughs) that he's carrying on his back. He couldn't take it no more. So they had to to call somebody else to carry this cross. Another thing, uh, when it says that he carried the cross, uh, unfortunately, because of movies, we believe that he had like an entire cross on his back. But that's that's not what's going on here. The Greek word is staros, which means a, a stake. So what Jesus actually was doing, he was carrying the cross beam. So you got the T, you got the, the vertical part, and you got the horizontal part. Uh, based on the, the history of how, what we know about crucifixion, people didn't carry the whole cross. They would carry the cross beam. So he was carrying the, like a log on his back. And when he got to the place of crucifixion, they would fasten the cross beam to the stake, put it in the ground, and lift them up in the air. So that's just where Hollywood can kind of confuse us, and we got false images in our head. So, so he's carrying the crossbeam, right, to the place called Golgotha. They call it the place of a skull, most likely because it represents a place of death. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, scholars debate over why he's doing this. Uh, the most common or most likely view is that Jesus is not trying to numb the pain. He's there to drink the full cup of God's wrath unmixed. He said, I'm not going to take, we're not going to numb this. I'm going to take it as it is. So he does not take the wine. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It says they crucified him, right? And crucifies to do what? Put, put nails where? hands and feet, and then they did what to his garments? Okay, now give, let me get Psalm 22 on the screen. Check this out. This is, now, this is written by King David. For, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
Next verse. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay. Crucifixion was invented in the 6th century by the Persians. It was adopted by the Romans probably two, 300 years later. Psalms was written over a long period of time, but the King David lived uh, around the 900s, 800s type of time frame, B.C. So that means that this would have been written at least two to 300 years before crucifixion was invented. So how is it that David is talking about the Messiah having his hands and feet pierced and sees all these details about lots being cast for clothes when there was no such thing as crucifixion when he wrote what he wrote because of divine revelation. This is how we know this book didn't come from man. It came from God through the agency of man. Because God is revealing to him. Remember, God is all-knowing, right? God knows that the act of crucifixion is going to come into place, and that is the death that the Messiah is going to die. So speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives that message to David, so he writes about it as if it already took place with precise detail. Let's go back to Mark. They crucified him and divided his garments among them. They cast lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, and it was the third hour, which means about nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charges against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now these two robbers, remember last week Barabbas, the insurrectionist? The scholars believe the two robbers are the rest of the bandits <laughs> who was raised in hell in Israel. These are more insurrectionists who were um, the freedom fighters who were dying, right, for, for their crimes. So they're on the cross, on his right and on his left. Stick with me. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who d- would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So you got random spectators now. See what Jesus is doing. And look at what they say in verse 29. They bring up one of his quotes saying, you who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Jesus didn't say that. He said, destroy the temple of this body and I'll raise it up in three days. Talking about the resurrection. They misunderstood him to say he was going to destroy the Jewish temple, which was a pinnacle of the highest level of religiosity in Israel. That's not what he was talking about. But they're, they're mocking him, saying, save yourself. Now, the irony is, they're saying, come down from the cross, save yourself, and we'll believe you. But the reason he's standing on the cross is to save them. <laughs> and they're saying, so, again, but, but no retaliation. Now, if you petty like me, <laughs> I would have been up there like, you dummy. Hey, let me shut up. <laughs> you petty like me. I would have been like, come on, man. You're going to try to play me. I'm sitting here trying to die for you. Trying to save your life. But Jesus being who he is, he just sits back and take that. These are just spectators who are wagging their heads. Verse 31, I promise you I'm going somewhere. It's going to be real brief. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Says the chief priest, that represents the religious hypocrites in Israel. That represents those who say they knew God but really did not know God. The religious hypocrites of Israel, the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're mocking him, saying, come down off the cross. So not only is Jesus showing patience against the Roman pagans who are in a totally different religion, now he's showing mercy to those who are reading a Hebrew Bible, saying they believe it, but at contrary, but still no retaliation from him. These are unbelievers, y'all, not believers. No retaliation from Christ, patience, showing restraint. Verse, in the B portion of verse 32, last sentence, it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So that means that the two insurrections, on his left and on his right, now they mock him. So Jesus doesn't retaliate here. So that means that the Roman pagans receive mercy. Religious hypocrites receive mercy. Sinful lawbreakers receive mercy. He's showing restraint in every category. Who are the religious lawbreakers? These are the people in our community today who are always in jail <laughs> or always doing something that deserves jail. He's showing restraint. I may have shared a story with y'all one day. I've probably talked about this a couple of times, but it always come up in sermons. Bring it up again. Hopefully y'all y'all forgot it so it'll sound like your first time hearing it. <laughs> but I remember back in, oh man, I can't remember the year. I was still living in Parma. This had to be somewhere between 2011 and 2014, probably 2012 or something. And it was the, uh, it was one of those mass shootings. I can't remember if it was the theater the, the guy went into, when people were watching the Batman movie, can't remember if it was that or was it the Sandy Hook. Yeah, it was the, it was the school shooting of the, um, y'all know when they, the guy went in there and killed all those kids in that elementary school. That happened so much, it's hard to even pinpoint which one it is. I was so angry about that because I had just lost my father and I was extra sensitive to death and extra sensitive towards people pain and suffering. So when I saw that this man went in there and killed a bunch of innocent kids. Oh, I was filled with so much rage. I'm like, oh, I, I, I wanted that man to go to hell so bad for that. I'm like, if there's ever a time to wish somebody went to hell, it, it was that guy. I was just filled with rage. And I remember I was eating my dinner. I didn't even want to finish eating as I'm watching the news. And i never forget, I, I go in our little small apartment, like the kitchen is almost connected. I go in the kitchen to put my, my plate in the sink. And I remember I opened up the fridge to get something to drink. Now, now when I'm watching the TV and I saw what that man did, these are the words I spoke out loud. I said, I hope he get the electric chair. Now, they don't even do the electric chair no more. That's how you know I was in my flesh. <laughs> they did that like 20 years, right? Right, lethal injection now, right? But I was so angry. I said, I hope he get the electric chair. And I stormed out of the living room and I went in the kitchen and I put my plates in the sink and I opened up the refrigerator and I'm telling y'all this happened. Now, I don't know if it was... God's voice I heard, and I don't know if it was just God speaking to my spirit so that I would interpret that it was him. Either way it goes, this is what God said. I believe he said, I opened up the refrigerator, and this is what I heard. You deserve the electric chair. Never forget it. 
The moment I opened up the refrigerator with that thought, the Spirit of God said, you deserve the electric chair. And it humbled me because what God was saying is, you have inclined your heart towards him with no mercy. When your sin would be identical to his if it wasn't for grace. You ain't no different than him or any other sinner. I'm the only one set apart from this sinful world. How dare you? Wish judgment and condemnation on another person. That was the last time I ever did something like that. <laughs> God broke me that day, and I had to come to grips with my own self-righteousness. That I wasn't as holy and righteous and good as I thought I was. But in that moment, <laughs> when I look at this scripture, I see that this is a reflection of what God has always been doing. Showing mercy and restraint to undeserving people. Question is, why is he doing this? I'll give you two scriptures. Let me get John 3. Now, verse 16 most of us probably know, right? We taught this early in Sunday school, but we never read the verse after it. <clears throat> Look what it says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's good. That's, God. That's good preaching right there, right? So he says the, God sent his son because he, loved his, he loves his son, and he don't want nobody to perish, so he sent the son as a sacrifice. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We always talk about why he did send the son into the world to do. We never talk about what he didn't send him in the world to do. He says, I did not send Christ to bring judgment on the world. He says, that's not what I did. Now, that day is coming. Don't get it twisted now. That day is coming. But it was not what happened 2,000 years ago, and it's not what's happening now because we're still in that age of grace. <laughs> Where God is saying, I'm patient. I'm, I'm, I'm a show restraint. <laughs> I'm not going to give people what they deserve. We think God up in heaven with just one finger on a chigger, ready to pop, 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 pop. Like, we just, we just, that's the view we have of God. Like, he just can't wait to take us out. <laughs> that ain't who he is. It, listen, if God was like that, we'd all be dead by now. We'd be dead by now. It's, it's, it's over with. But he says, I sent him into the world to save these knuckleheads. <laughs> Let's piggyback off that verse and let Peter give us even more insight. Let me get 2 Peter chapter 3, please. Peter is talking about those who mock the second coming, who saying it's taking so long, that means Jesus ain't coming back. This is Peter's exhortation in them. He says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Let me get verse 15. And remember our Lord's patience 
gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. So Peter said, I ain't the only one talking this patient stuff. He says, Paul wrote you 13 letters saying the same thing. You, you see the consistency. The same God who revealed himself to Moses as gracious, compassionate, patient is the same God looking over this world today. What does this all mean? Two things. If God is not wishing vengeance on people now, we should not be wishing vengeance on people now. If God's disposition is restraint, then our disposition towards people should be what? Restraint. Stop being so quick to retaliate when you're wronged by somebody. We cannot be Christians and live that way. We need to follow the example of Christ who says, I was reviled, I was mistreated, but I stood there and showed mercy and restraint. And you know what's amazing? Talk about the two criminals who were reviling him on the cross. When you read in the other gospel accounts, it says one of them got saved. How? Jesus is on the cross for approximately six hours. So during that time of suffering, they were both reviling him at one point. But at another point, something must have shifted <laughs> where Jesus must have gave the gospel to one of them and they acknowledged their sin. So this means that the ones who were reviling him, Jesus didn't just show restraint by not retaliating. He actually extended grace to them and so that they might be a recipient of his compassion. It's an action. And this is how we as believers must treat each other. Not being so quick to seek vengeance, man. Second thing I want us to understand is this, and this is probably the bigger point. If God is this merciful, patient, and compassionate towards pagans, religious hypocrites who don't know him, and lawbreakers who don't know him, how much more patient is he going to be with us? His beloved, his elect people, the apple of his eye, his sheep. If, if he's mercy towards those who hate him, how much more merciful is he upon those who love him and fall short but love him and fall short but love him? We got to get rid of this attitude we have towards God that as soon as we mess up, he's done with us. Soon as we go through a season of ungodliness, he's done with us. That is not the gospel. Listen, you cannot get through this Christian life with that view, of, with a wrong view of God and his patience. And listen, I'm telling you, I've been a pastor since I don't even know what it's been now, seven, eight years, right? And I've been a Christian for a long time. I have, I, listen, I know the effects that sin will have on a Christian if they don't have a proper theology of God's grace. All it does is send you towards a deeper tailspin of wickedness. If you view God as a tyrant who can't wait to punish you, there's no way you're going to live a life of fruitfulness. But if you view God as kind, merciful, gracious, not to be played with, but gracious, not to be mocked, not to be taken advantage of, but patient, who says all you got to do is just come. 
<laughs> just come to me. Confess your sins and repent. We wipe this thing clean like it never happened. That's who God is. That's who our Heavenly Father is. Listen, I believe God sent me here this morning to free some people, man. We got to change our theology. And here's what happens. And this, you know what, this wasn't even part of my notes, but here's what I think happens. I think we often view God in light of our upbringing, of our experiences. So if daddy was ready to whoop the heck out of us, when, sorry, boys, I ain't supposed to say heck. But when the, when the father ready to whoop the mess out of us, when we do something wrong, when we grew up, if all we saw was the belt constantly, if all we saw was being disciplined out of anger, not out of love, constantly, if we grew up abused verbally or physically, that's how we're likely going to view God. If, if we felt like our parents abandoned us or left us to our own vices or, or only supported us when we deserved it or when we did the right thing, that's how we're going to view God. He only going to rock with us when we're doing the right thing. We can't view God through the light or through the lens of our flawed upbringing. We got to view God in light of this book. <laughs> It's the perfect revelation of him. Well, Brian, I see Jesus was showing patience. That don't mean that God is that way. Hebrews 1 and 3 says he's the exact representation of his character and the radiance of God's glory. Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says, ain't you seen me? You looking at him. He who has seen me has seen the Father. We're equals. So when we view the life of Jesus... We're being taught what God is like. Let us accept it, not run for it. Let us worship him for his kindness and his compassion towards us. And may we extend that same grace and compassion to others. Let's stand to our feet and pray with each other. Father, we are blown away by your grace. The songwriter calls it reckless love. Your apostle Paul called it the foolishness of the cross, meaning it don't even make logical sense for you to love us the way you do. On our best day, you love us. On our worst day, you love us. And all you really require is that we humbly come before you, confess our sins, repent, and walk with you. God, we're so blessed to have a God like you. And we thank you for saving us and adopting us as your children into your family. God, I pray for your sheep who are gathered under the sound of my voice, people who have been hurt, people who have been traumatized. We grow up with all type of baggage and pain and suffering and all type of things, and these things shape our theology, shape our Christian ethic. 
God, I'm praying that you would break some chains today. Your word is powerful. You said it's not my word like a hammer that shatters the rock in pieces. God, would you break the rock and the hardness of our hearts through your word? So that we can fully begin to view you in light of the scriptures, knowing that you are a patient God who loves us, who's compassionate, who's gracious. Help us not to just know it intellectually, but to experience it and to understand it spiritually in our hearts. And once we receive that revelation, Father, I'm asking that we extend that characteristic to others. May we never seek vengeance. May we never hold people's sin against them. May we never wish bad. May we love and love hard. For we know it is pleasing in your sight. And we'll be mindful, Lord, to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Let Living Stones Church be a church that's marked by love. You said they'll know you're my disciples for the love you have toward one another. So if we don't get that right, we blow it off. So, Lord, I pray that for the universal church and the local church here at Living Stones, that we will be a church marked by love. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we get a Lord some worship, some praise, some